Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Please check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. First Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 14. And the word of the Sovereign Lord reads, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. This is the word of the Lord. The the late R.C. Sproul once said, the Greek word for church, ecclesia, is made up of a prefix and a root. The prefix is ek, out of, and the root is the verb cleo, or to call. The church in the New Testament is made up of those who are called out from the world, from darkness, from damnation, from paganism, to become members of the body of Christ. So I want to welcome you back to our series titled, um, the series on the church titled, First Timothy, the Plan for Church and Life. And in this series, we are looking to get clear about what the church is, what the church is for, and what the church is to do. And today, we finally finally have come to the heart of the issue. We've come to the purpose statement of this entire letter. We've talked about it every week to this point, but we're finally here. And in this statement, Paul explains not only why he wrote the letter, but he also gives us a clear picture of what the church is in the process. And we have a great deal to cover, so let's just get right to it. We're going to go right back to the text, 1 Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 14. Paul writes, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. Notice how Paul says, I hope to come to you soon. Now, why would that be important to us? Well, it's important because Paul had left Timothy in Ephesus to deal with a very difficult task. He was left to deal with the church there and to fix it. He he was left to bring reformation to a church that had lost its way. Paul left Timothy in the city of Ephesus to deal with a very big problem. The once faithful church had begun to slip off of its theological foundation and was headed for disaster because the church had, had put into place unqualified leaders and was teaching false doctrine. And as a result, the church was internally and externally beginning to fall apart. There was disunity. There were quarrels. There was all kinds of speculative teaching. And there was a number of behavioral issues that began to pop up as a result. The church was in deep trouble and Paul wasn't able to be there himself. And so he left the young pastor there to, to help stop that false teaching. Which he meant, what he, what he left him to do was to confront the, the, the leaders of the church. Right? Putting an end to false teaching I means he had to get right up in the business of the, the teachers and make them stop. 
And then he had to put in put an end to the behavioral issues, which meant he had to confront the members of the church of those issues and apply church discipline. And then he needed to shore up the leadership of the church and make sure that they were qualified, which meant he would have to remove unqualified people from leadership and perhaps even from the church itself. This was a really tough assignment. That's why Paul said, I wish, you know, I hope to come to you. I would like to be there to help there in Ephesus because it's a big job for a young pastor to tackle. So that's kind of like the context of where he's coming from. And he says, I hope to come to you soon, but now it's not possible, right? But in light of that, I'm writing these things to you. Now, before we press on, we need to understand what he means by these things. It's easy to read over the sentence and just keep going and not stop long enough to say, wait a minute, he said that for a reason. He's referring to something specific here. These things that he's talking about are all the directives that he has given in the letter so far. Again, like putting an end to the false teaching and applying church discipline and making sure to pray for all kinds of people and not allowing unqualified people into leadership. He said, I'm telling you these things, right? But he's not just talking about the things in the beginning of the letter. He also is talking about the things that he's going to talk about at the end of the letter. There are other directives that he's not addressed yet, like how to deal with the needs of the church, like the widows. There's a need there, and he's going to give him advice and talk about how to deal with that. He's also going to talk about training himself for godliness and encouraging others to pursue godliness. And he's going to also talk about how legitimate elders to be treated in the church. These are the things that Paul is referring to. And he's writing these things, these directives, for a purpose. In fact, I want you to notice this. He says, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that. Two really important words here. This expression, so that, in the Greek, is called it's what's called a henna clause. Because the word that they translate into English is the word, is, is the word henna. And, and, and I know you didn't sign up for a grammar class this morning, but please, you know, don't fall asleep yet. Right? But it's important for us to think about this because this henna clause is what's called a subordinating conjunction. And what that means is that these two clauses are inextricably linked. You can't have one without the other. One clause subordinates the other. One is dependent upon the other. The two ideas are related to one another. In fact, in this henna clause tells us Right? That there's a purpose being given here. What that means is one clause gives purpose to the other. So with that in mind, look again at, at verse 14. He says, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that for a purpose, I'm writing these things to you for, for a purpose that you may know something. That's the purpose. I'm writing these things to you so that you may know something. Not just think something, but know something. This is the point of what Paul's been driving at in these verses. In fact, this is the point of the whole letter. I'm writing these things to you so that you may know something. And what we need to understand is the something that follows this is the purpose of the entire letter. What he needs Timothy to know is the purpose of the entire letter, which means this is the point we, as good students of the Bible, should set up and take notice carefully of what follows. We should pay close attention to the purpose of the letter. And he says, I'm writing these things to you so that you may know how one 
ought to behave in the household of God. That is the point. That is the point of the whole letter. Paul did not write this letter so that Timothy would know how to have an awesome ministry. Paul did not write this letter so that he would know how to keep people's, people in the church interested and not falling asleep while he preached. He did not write this letter so that, that he could now you know, live a purpose-driven life or have a purpose-driven church. Paul wants Timothy to be clear and to know how people are to behave in the household of God. This is the emphasis. This is the point. This is the purpose of the entire letter. Because let me collect, let's think about this and connect all the dots. Bad theology in the church leads to unqualified leaders. Unqualified leaders lead to false teaching. False teaching leads to behavioral issues in the church. Now, why is this important? Well, think about this. When you think of the word behave, we think in terms of rules. That's what we typically think of. Like, don't bring food in the sanctuary, or like, like, don't talk during the sermon, or you know, make sure your phone's turned off, and so, right? Don't put your finger in the communion cups. That'd be really rude, right? We think in terms like that. We think of specific actions. We think in terms of, of being good and behaving ourselves like little kids. Okay, now behave yourself. But the word here in the, in, in, that is used in the Greek is actually that, that we translate as behave is about how one conducts himself or herself. The word doesn't just mean behave. It also means live, how we live, how we dwell, how we conduct ourselves. I'm writing these things to you so that you may know how people are to conduct themselves in the house of the Lord. So that you would know how people ought to live in the church. You see, it's a broader understanding. It's about right ordering of the church and those who are in the church. It's about having a theological foundation that helps the church to select qualified men to leadership of the church who then teach right doctrines. And those right doctrines lead to right action or behavior in the church. That's the whole point of this letter. Right theology leads to qualified leadership that leads to right teaching that leads to right action in the church and in the world. This is why we say things like, theology matters. It's why qualifications for leaders matters. This is why doctrines, yes, even doctrines matter. Because the, church, the church's behavior individually and corporately, whether gathered together or outside in the world, is the outworking of the church's theology, which is taught by faithful teachers through orthodox doctrines of the church. That is why this is so important. You see, there's an expectation. There is an expectation by God of how people are to act and to live in and as the church. There is an expectation by God that our theology ought to shape us and into the church that God desires us to be. By the way, this is reflected then in, in orderly worship. Do we worship God the way that He wants us to? Do we worship God the way that He has prescribed for us to? By the way, this is a really quick way to distinguish between churches that are on a solid theological foundation and ones that are not. 
right? Worship services, worship, a worship service that's designed mainly to entertain and to attract non-believers and make them feel good about themselves have theological and leadership problems. If, if, if the sermon of the worship service isn't about proclaiming the truth of the gospel and the doctrines of the faith, but rather eight ways to have a happy life, you have a theological and, and behavioral issue in the church. Worship in the church, from singing to the preaching of the word to giving to the fellowship, ought to be God-centered and aimed at glorifying Him. It's about how we behave in and as the church. There's an expectation from God in how we worship, but there is also an expectation in how we treat each other. And if there is a message that we need to hear and that we need to be telling other people who are Christians, it's this one right here. There is an expectation from God in how we treat one another. We are part of the same family, and as such, we ought to love and respect and even tolerate one another when we, even when we disagree. God has an expectation in how we behave towards each other, and we're going to say more about that in a little bit. But then there is an expectation of God how we live in relationship with each other, but there's an expectation that we, that we are engaged in the pursuit of, of godliness. God expects for us to pursue godliness. If you look through 1 Timothy, just scan through it at some point and count the number of times that Paul talks about godliness. It's a common theme that runs over and over and over again. Right? That we seek to become more like Christ is the issue in our actions and our attitudes. That we ought to grow in how we love the things that God loves, and that we begin to hate the things that God hates. A mark right, of right behavior in the church is a pursuit of godliness. Now, I say pursuit. Why? Because in this life, we're not going to get there on our own. We're going to be growing always. No matter how long you are a Christian, you're still going to continually be battling sin, but it's a pursuit. We're going to be growing towards holiness and godliness. Also, there's an expectation of God for service. If we are believers in Christ, we should seek to serve the church and seek to serve one another, as we have talked about before. We need to all be serving in some capacity. That's what we were created for. As Paul says, you're saved by grace through faith. It's a gift of God, not from works, so no one may boast. For we are created in Christ Jesus for the good works that we that God has prepared for us to do. We are all to serve in some capacity, and we are all ought to be serving, modeling ourselves as the pattern after the pattern of the deacons, as we talked about last week. God has an expectation of how we behave in our service. We ought to serve as if serving God Himself. We ought to serve in a way that is not like we're doing each other a favor. We ought to serve one another not because we just feel sorry for each other. We should be serving each other because we're serving God when we do. God has expectations in how we behave in service, in our worship, and how we treat each other, and in the pursuit of godliness. And Paul says that I'm writing these things to you 
that you may know how a Christian ought to behave and to live in church. Now, why? You might, why is this important? I mean, you might ask that. I mean, why is there an expectation for how the members of the church and, and how they live? Well, Paul tells us why. Paul makes it really clear why. He says, I'm writing these things so that you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar in the buttress of the truth. Paul is saying the reason why that how we behave is important and how the church behaves individually and corporately is found in the identity of the church itself. You see, the first thing we need to see about the church's identity is the truth that the church belongs to Him. It is His church. Again, I think there's an American ideal that we can all just kind of get do away with somehow that we personally own the church. It is His church. And not just, notice it doesn't just say God. It says the living God. The one and only true God. The self-existing, unchanging, all-powerful, all-knowing creator of the universe. That God, it is His church. Again, notice the, the language. The church of the living God, it belongs to Him. Right. And since it belongs to Him, He's the one who gets to set the terms. He's the one who sets the standards. He's the one that gets to create the definitions, which means He defines how the church is to be built. He defines how the church is to be led. He defines how the church itself, how we as the church, individually and corporately, are to live. It is His church. It has every right to have expectations of how we behave in and as the church, corporately and individually, it belongs to him. But also the church is his family. Paul says that the church is the household of God. And the term household is not a reference to a building. It's not talking about a house in the sense of blocks and wood. He's talking about a household, a family. The church is God's family. One of the greatest truths of the gospel is not only are we justified and saved from the penalty of sin, and not only are we regenerated and given a brand new life, and not only are we sanctified and made right and remade into the image of Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit, we are the moment that we believe adopted into the family of God. We don't talk near enough about our adoption but it's a theme that runs throughout the New Testament that really should give us hope. Jesus said, or the, or the Word of God said in John chapter 1, verse 12, but all who did receive Him, Jesus Christ, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become, what? Children of God. Romans chapter 8, verse 15, He says, for you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. You have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. We were adopted and made part of God's family, which means we've been made completely right with Him. You understand that we were at war with God and not only did He make peace with us, He didn't just bring us into the kingdom tolerating us as former enemies saying, you stay over there and I'll stay over here and everything will be fine. No, He took us, His enemies, 
and gave us the ring and the robe and the sandals on our feet and adopted us as sons. We are completely reconciled to God. As Romans says that we have been made through justification, we have peace with God. But the thing that we need to see is not only do we have, a, have we been made in our, right in our relationship with God, we've been made in our, right in our relationship to one another. As family, we are brothers and sisters in Christ. Internalize that. If you are in Christ, you are my brother and sister. Unchangeably so. We are not only family with God, the Father, we are family with each other. And church, if there's a burden in my heart, that's going to be one that i got to share with you. I have seen how Christians can and do tear each other down and have mean things to say to each other and about each other, and it breaks my heart. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. We are family. And the thing that we need to be clear about is all of us have the exact same equal standing with God. No one stands above the other. Because all of us are wretched sinners. All of us were dead in our sins and trespasses. Unable to do anything about it. But we were made alive through Christ, for by grace we have all been saved through faith. We stand all equal at the cross. You want to see equality in the world? That's the only place you will ever find true equality is at the foot of the cross, which means we have no right to hate on one another. We have no right to look down our noses at one another. We have no right to deny each other grace and mercy and compassion and patience and love. In fact, as Jesus said, love is the hallmark of, of what a Christian is. Jesus said in, in John chapter 13, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. Right? And then he says, he, he defines it for us. He tells us really clear, by this love, all people will know that you are my disciples if you love, if you have one, love for one another. That is the hallmark of being in the Christian family, that we have love for one another. And understand, this love that he's talking about here specifically is a love that Christians ought to have for one another. This is not a love for everybody else in the world. We're to love our neighbor, sure. But there should be a supernatural, grace-soaked, mercy-filled love that we have for our brothers and sisters in Christ. So the church belongs to God. It is His family. And so in light of that, we ought to live the way that God wants us to. But also the church was created by God for a specific purpose. Right? It was meant to be a light to the world as the pillar and buttress of the truth. This is one of my favorite expressions in the entire Bible right here. Once I began to wrap my head around this, the my understanding of the church finally began to materialize and I was able to begin to put away foolish notions of what the church is. Again, look at the text. I'm writing these things to you so that you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. It should actually say the pillar and buttress of the truth. That's what the Greek really communicates and the, uh, 
the New American Standard Version actually uh, communicates that, that way. Same with the um, NIV and the um, New Living Translation. It is the pillar and buttress of the truth. Now, this is a text I talk about often, but let's just, let me just remind ourselves what Paul is talking about here. In the city of Ephesus, there was this, this wonderful structure. It was one of the wonders of the world. And it was the temple to the goddess Artemis, which then was later changed to Diana. One was Greek, the other one was Roman. And it was this grand structure. It was a giant, glorious structure, this gigantic roof that was all carved out in relief with pictures. And it was just a glorious thing to, to behold all over the city. And this giant structure rested on over a hundred massive marble pillars. Each pillar was beautiful and gigantic, and it was glorious to behold, and it rested on a gigantic foundation or buttress of stone. And Paul takes this imagery and he uses it to express the truth about something even more grand and glorious, the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this glorious truth, this truth, this life-saving, world-changing truth is supported and upheld by the church, the pillar or the upright support and the buttress and foundation that holds it all into place. You see, Paul is deliberately using this imagery to convey a crucial idea. The church and the church alone is God's given instrument to the world that He has ordained to protect and to proclaim the rock-solid, immovable truth about God and His plan of redemption. The church is the institution that God has given to the world to defend and declare the truth to a dying world. The pillar and the buttress of the truth. In our postmodern world, Everyone has given up on the idea of an objective, unchanging, universal truth. That's why people believe that the truth is relative. Because your truth is not my truth. That's why we honestly are having discussions today about whether a person can be transracial now. Because no longer the issue is transgenderism, changing your gender from what was assigned at birth. Now, uh, a, a British pop star has had, went and had undergone several surgeries to change his eyes because he really wants to be Korean. And guess what? The people who support transgenderism say, you can't do that. You can't change your body to match your idea of who you think you are. Hmm, that's interesting. The problem is, the root of that is simply that the truth itself is relative. That there is no objective standard of truth. Everyone has given up on the, on the truth except what institution? The church. The church is the sole immovable institution that maintains that truth is objective, unchanging, knowable, and life-saving. That is why the theology of the church is so important. That's why the leadership of the church is so important. That's why the doctrines being taught in the church is so important. That is why the behavior of those in the church and outside of the church is so important. The church is the pillar and buttress of the truth, which means the church is the hope of the world. 
This is what it all boils down to. All of it is pointing to this. The church, the local church is the hope of the world. It's the one that protects the orthodox doctrines of the faith. It is the church that trains right, and commissions elder qualified men to go into the world as missionaries and church planners. It is the church that equips the saints for the ministry. It is the church that keeps the gospel at the center of faith and life. It is the church that facilitates the Great Commission by discipling believers and equipping them to go out into the world and to make disciples of the nations. The church is the hope of the world because it is through the church God has ordained that the gospel will flow to all the rest of the world. That's why theology matters and leadership matters. And doctrines matter and how we live and behave as a witness to a dying world matters. You and I and the rest of the body of Christ are together the hope of the world. Do you, do you realize that? This is not abstract like the church, some building, some organization is the hope of the world. We, together, Gathered together in this room are the hope of the world. We are the hope of this community. Do you understand that? This is not, not some abstraction that doesn't involve you. This is all about you. This is why it's about behavior. We are witnesses to a dying world. We are the instrument God is using to bring hope, the hope of Christ to the lost. Can you see how these things now are coming together? The church belongs to God. The church is God's family. The church is the pill and the buttress of the truth. The church is the hope of the world. That is what we see from this letter. But there's one more thing that we need to understand about the church. And it's one thing that really has like slipped my notice a number of times reading this. It wasn't until I really studied deeper that I had become convicted of this truth. And that is this. The church is the pillar and buttress of the truth but the church is confessional in its nature. The church and how it lives and operates and does what it does and does all that God calls it to is confessional by nature. Look at verse 16. Because usually people, when they read this section, they stop there and they go, oh, look, nice, a nice little poem there, and they move on to chapter 4. I know that's been my experience. But look, notice what Paul says. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. Now, remember, the mystery that, that he's talking about is not like a mystery movie, right? It's not like, hey, man, that's a mystery to me. Like, I don't know the answer to that. The Greek word there is not something hidden or mysterious. The Greek word he uses there for mystery is a truth that at one time was concealed, but now has been revealed. It is revealed. It's a truth that we know. And what is this mystery of godliness that was once concealed and now revealed in Christ that Paul's talking about? It's the gospel. The gospel is the mystery of godliness because it is only through the gospel can you attain godliness. And so he says, great is this truth of the gospel. And what you need to understand is this expression, great is the mystery of godliness, is a play on an expression that the Ephesians used in their culture. Because remember, this was about the worship of Diana in Ephesus, and when they came to the temple, what would they say? Great is Artemis. Great is Diana. Sorry, you're great too, but right? <laughs> right? 
but it was an expression of worship. And what Paul is saying is the truth of the gospel, which rests upon the church, the pillar and the buttress of the church, is even greater than Diana. How great is the gospel is what he's saying. This is an expression of worship. Great indeed we confess is the gospel, is another way to say it. And please don't lose sight of the word confess. Because it means great we agree, great we by consensus agree, great we confess. Right? And, and look at the words that follow that then. He says, he was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. If you notice that this has a poetic structure to it. Right? In fact, if you look in your Bibles, you see it's kind of weird how it's like kind of like put in there in the paragraph. It seems like this is broken down in stanzas, and the reason for that is because it is. Right? These lines are poetic because they are believed to be from an early hymn, like an early song for remembering and celebrating the truth. I mean, notice the truth that this hymn can, conveys. He was manifested in the flesh. What is that? That's the doctrine of incarnation of Christ. Vindicated by the Spirit. That's the truth that He lived a perfect life and His resurrection vindicated that. It was seen by angels, a testament to His divinity. Proclaimed among the nations. That's the Great Commission. Believed on in the world. That's the doctrine of salvation. Taken up into glory, the truth of His ascension. You see, this hymn is an expression of the truth of the gospel. In fact, this is a very early creed about the gospel. This is a confession of faith. Paul says, great, we confess the mystery of the gospel and incites a confession of faith about the gospel that all the Christians would agree with. Think about this, because Jesus did come in the flesh. You can't have the gospel without that. He was resurrected. He is divine. He gave the proclamation to make disciples of all the nations, and He called people to believe and to be saved, and He was taken up in glory to the right hand of the Father where He now intercedes for us. All essential truths. This hymn is a little creedal formula, like a confession of faith, and it probably was a hymn in order to make that truth easy to remember, hence singing songs. And the reason why this is important is because we recognize that this confession, the reason why it's important that we recognize it as a confession of faith is because the church by its nature confesses the truth of the gospel. The church is confessional in its nature. And this then offers us two important things that we need to embrace. And that is, number one, confessions are an integral part of the church. Confessions are an integral part of the church. Now, even though that the great creeds and confessions themselves are not Scripture, and they are not inerrant like Scripture, they are not theonoustos like Scripture, they are valuable because they summarize for us what the Scriptures teach. For example, if you read your Bible front to back, you will not find the word Trinity in the Bible. It just simply isn't there. That word doesn't exist in the Greek or the Hebrew or any other text. But when you read the New Testament in context, what you find is the Scripture teaches very clearly that there is one God who exists in three co-equal, eternal, co-eternal people 
but are distinct persons. The Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God, but the Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the Holy Spirit. They are three distinct persons, yet share full divinity and are one God. That is an essential truth that you must agree with, otherwise you're not a Christian. So if you don't believe that Jesus is God, you're not a Christian. You might be a nice person who really loves to be part of a religion, but, but you by definition don't have faith in Christ. If you believe that the Holy Spirit is just some force, impersonal force, then you're not a Christian. If you believe that Jesus is all three, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, just different manifestations at different times, you don't understand who He is. The doctrine of the Trinity, though not called Trinity in the Scriptures, is still taught by the Scriptures. And this truth, over time, has been summarized very clearly in our various creeds. In fact, if we look at our own Statement of Faith, the 2000 Baptist Faith and Message, Article 2 on, this do on the doctrine of God says this, There is one and only one living and true God. He is intelligent, spiritual, and personal being, the creator, redeemer, preserver, and ruler of the universe. God is infinite in holiness and all other perfections. God is all-powerful and all-knowing, and His perfect knowledge extends to all things, past, present, and future, including the future decisions of free creatures. To Him we owe the highest love, reverence, and obedience. The eternal triune God reveals Himself to us as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit with distinct personal attributes, but without division of nature essence, or being. That part of our confession, of our statement of faith, is a summary of what the Scriptures are actually teaching. It's not the Word of God itself, but it's summarizing for us the Word of God so we can understand this idea. Like the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith, chapter 2, paragraph 3, says the divine and infinite being consists of three real persons, the Father, the Word or Son, and the Holy Spirit. These three have the same substance, power, and eternity, ha each having the whole divine essence without the this essence being divided. The Father is not derived from anyone, neither begotten nor proceeding. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father. The Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. All three are infinite and without beginning, and therefore only Therefore, only one God, who is not to be divided in nature and being. Yet, these three are distinguished in several distinctive characteristics and personal relations. This truth of the Trinity is the foundation of all of our fellowship with God and of our comforting dependence upon Him. In other words, the Trinity is an essential part of our faith. And the creeds and the confessions that have come down to us over time help us to understand these things. These clearly and consistently express what the Scripture teaches. Confessions summarize teachings in the Bible in a clear, concise doctrine so they can be taught and understood and agreed with. Confessions also address important theological issues because over time there have been a number of important theological issues. The confession that we see here in this text addresses the truth of the gospel. The Apostles' Creed addressed essential things that people needed to know and agree with to be considered a believer. In fact, it's the, one of the shorter ones, so I'll just read it for you. I believe, and you've probably heard this a thousand times, I believe in God the Father Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth. 
I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He ascended to hell. The third day He rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From there He will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic, or the universal church. That's what it means. The communion of saints, which by the way is what we're going to do today. The forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. These are essential elements of the Christian faith, all the way down to the virgin birth. Right? Because there are people who said, well, Jesus didn't really, wasn't born really of a virgin. So they created this creed from the scriptures so that we can say, this is what we believe. But years later, the Nicene Creed was written because there were other questions about Christ's nature that this creed didn't fully totally addressed. Like, was, God, was Jesus really God or was He some created being? And so the Nicene Creed, which is a bit longer, goes into detail here and says, we believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages. And notice it says, God of God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence of the Father. This creed further develops the ideas that are in the Bible to help address an important issue on Christ's divinity. And then you have the Athanasian Creed a little bit later that goes on to explain the Trinity. Right? It's more lengthy, but let me just give you the relevant part. It says, similarly, the Father is Almighty, the Son is Almighty, the Holy Spirit is Almighty, yet there are not three Almighty beings, there is but one Almighty being. Thus, the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God, yet there are not three gods, there is but one God. Thus, the Father is Lord, the Son is Lord, the Holy Spirit is Lord, yet there are not three lords, but there is one Lord. And you get the point. Can you see how important then these creeds have been as the, as the truth of our faith has been handed down from generation to generation? These creeds were developed in response to false teaching and people who took the Scriptures and twisted them to fit their own theology. These creeds were created not only to summarize what the Bible teaches, they were created to address specific issues, but also these creeds anchor the church firmly to the Scriptures and the doctrines handed down by the apostles. You see, the faith that we have is not novel to our generation. It is the faith that we believe was handed down by God to the apostles, handed down to the church. And again, Paul calls the church the pillar and the buttress of the truth. The word buttress can be translated as ground or foundation. Well, what, is, what does a foundation do? It gives stability to what's, what, what has been built on it. Right? It provides a stable platform on which to build, and it supports the weight on what has been built. But then what happens when the foundation becomes unstable? When the foundation becomes undermined or compromised? The whole structure becomes weak and unstable and even dangerous. The church, the foundation that the church, the foundation must itself remain stable. It must remain fixed in place and be immovable, right? Immovable by the against the, the powers of culture, immovable against the power of the government, immovable against the power of people's emotions. 
The church is to remain rock solid. And the way that the church achieves that stability is by building that, by building that foundation on the bedrock truths of Scripture that are summarized in the creeds and the confessions. The creeds and confessions help to stabilize and support the foundation of the church. Creeds and confessions provide biblical theology, a framework from which we build the church and select qualified leaders. The creeds and confessions give historical guidance to the preaching of the Word of God and the teaching of true orthodox doctrines of the faith. As we know, the true doctrines build up healthy churches and that outworking then is right behavior in the church. As the late R.C. Sproul said, creedal statements are an attempt to show a coherent, unified understanding of the whole of Scripture. And because of that, they are an anchor that anchors the church firmly in place, stabilizing the foundation. Now, this idea of confessional uh, of a church is confessional in nature and the idea that people ought to be clear about what they believe and confess the true doctrines of the faith is an idea that frankly in our postmodern culture some people just push back on many people resent confessions and confessional churches because they think you know it's just me Jesus in this bible right here and that's all i need i don't need the church i don't i don't i don't need i don't need elders and pastors in my life I don't need those creeds. I don't need doctrines handed down from the early church. And so they go to the Bible and they read it for themselves thinking they have the ability to work through all of the big questions that people have wrestled with for thousands of years that somehow, someway, they're going to come out on the other end knowing what all the truths are by themselves. There's a lot of people who think this way. A lot of people who think this way. You can find them all over YouTube, by the way. Usually when they find some novel ideas, they run with it, and they get a couple of people say, hey, that's a pretty good idea, and next thing you know, got a YouTube channel. Right? The problem is they believe that they're discerning enough on their own not to fall into false doctrines. But look at this illustration here for a quick second. I find this actually really, really helpful. You see, there's really two ways for people individually to interpret Scripture. You can do it by yourself without reference to the church in its history and historic creeds and confessions, and without the aid of qualified elders who are theologically trained to lead in this fashion, right, and try to go at your own, or you can study the scriptures using the creeds and confessions along the way with the help in, of elders in local churches to guide you and help you. Not to say you don't question creeds and confessions. You question them, yes, you do that. But creeds and confessions make understanding the Scriptures a bit easier, and it gives you a safe place to work through the doctrines, as all Christians need to. You should never, you should never have a fully developed theology simply based on what I'm telling you. Your theology needs to be derived from your study of Scripture, aided by the things I tell you, aided by the, the, the confessions and the creeds, aided by what other pastors say, aided by in-depth Bible study and the Holy Spirit. You see, without a robust statement of faith or a creed or confession, you have no historical standard to help you to see when you've wandered off into heresy. In fact, every modern-day cult and every modern-day heresy that's being taught right now has its roots in, the re in a rejection of some creed or confession of faith that the church has held on to throughout history. 
The Jesus name only movement has embraced the heresy of modalism, which is the idea that Jesus is all three, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But that was dealt with, as we see in the Athanasian Creed. The Jehovah's Witnesses reject the divinity of Christ, which was dealt with in what? The Nicene Creed. Today's progressives reject the idea of the inerrancy and the sufficiency of Scripture, but that was dealt with by our own 2000 Baptist faith and message. That's why when you read the first article on the Scriptures, you will see it is stunning in its pronouncement about what the Scriptures are. The late A.A. Hodge wrote this. He says, Men must interpret to the best of their ability each particular part of Scripture separately and then combine all of that Scripture, all that Scripture teaches upon every subject into a consistent whole and then adjust their teachings upon different subjects in mutual consistency as parts of a harmonious, harmonious system. In other words, everybody needs to study the Scriptures and make sure that they're consistent in what the Scriptures are teaching. And he says, every student of the Bible must do this and, and all make it, make it obvious that they do it by the terms that they use in their prayers and religious discourse, whether they admit or deny the propriety of human creeds or confessions. But if they refuse the assistance afforded by the statements of doctrine slowly elaborated and defined by the church, they must make their own creeds by their own unaided wisdom. In other words... If you decide to do it on your own, you're basically walking in your own wisdom. The real question is not, as often pretended, between the the Word of God and the creed of men, but between the tried and proved faith of the collective body of God's people and the private judgment and the unassisted wisdom of those who repudiate creeds. In other words, you have a choice. You can try to figure it out all on your own and come to a consistent theological system that goes through the entire Bible, or you use the help of those faithful people who've gone before you. It is unwise and unhealthy as Christians to just simply reject creeds and confessions out of hand. But but believe me, people will do that. You've heard it said, I don't have no creed but Christ. Which, by the way, I don't know if you realize, is a creedal statement by itself. As Benaiah Carroll says, there never was a man in the world without a creed. What is a creed? A creed is what you believe. What is a confession? It is a declaration of what you believe. That declaration may be oral or may be committed to writing, but the creed is there, either expressed or implied. Everyone has a creed. Everyone has a confession. So the question isn't about whether or not you have a creed or confession. The question is, is the creed and confession you're holding on to, is it true or is it not true? Other people say that doctrines divide. Burke Parsons, by the way, Burke Parsons is one one of the preeminent theologians of our time. And he was somebody who was about to be signed, I think it was, to the boy band group in sync but right at the last minute decided he wanted to follow the Lord and preach the Word of God. Can you imagine, right? So when you see those boys dancing around, you can remember there was a Christian theologian who could have been one of them. I guess he was a good singer. So, But anyway, Burke Parsons says this. He says, We might hear confessionally challenged Christians say things such as, My only creed is Christ, or I don't need theology, just give me Jesus, or confessions divide, Christ unites. 
Such Christians are actually under the impression that their churches don't have confessions, when in truth, every church has a confession, though it may not be written down, and though it may constantly change according to the whims and fancies of the pastor. They have been somehow deceived into thinking that all of the various historical Reformed confessions only serve to divide the church of its unity and disarm the Bible of its authority. Nothing can be further from the truth For what is so amazing about Reformed confessions in general is not how they are different from one another, but how similar they are, and how each use biblical language in affirming the faith once delivered to the saints. Everyone, everyone, everyone has a confession. The only question that you have to ask yourself, is it true? Now, I've heard this expression over and over again. Doctrines divide. I've heard it many times in my Christian life, especially when I begin to address doctrines. Let me me tell you, doctrines do divide, but in a necessary way. Doctrines divide truth from the lie. Doctrines divide false teachers from true teachers. Doctrines divide the church of the living God from the cults who are imitators of the church. So doctrines do divide, but they must do so in order to maintain a healthy church. As again, R.C. Sproul said, nothing divides like truth. Nothing divides like Jesus. But we have this idea that the only real sin that you can have is dividing the church. Brothers and sisters, dividing the church along the truth, the lines of the truth, is essential to the health of the church. But what about unity? Unity in the church is essential. Read the letter to the Ephesians. That's what it's all about, is the unity of the faith. Unity of the church is important, but understand that there is only one place where we can be unified in the church. And that is on the essentials of the truth. That's where we must be unified, is the essentials of the truth. And by the way, that's what we have here at First Baptist Church. I don't know if you realize that. We have... A church that's unified on the, the, the essentials. I'm a Baptist who holds to historic Baptist Reformed theology. Some of you hold to, that, to all that, and some of you go, ah, not so much. That's okay. Some of you came from Calvary chapels. Some of you came from the four square churches. Some of you came from independent fundamentalist Baptist churches. Some came from American Baptist churches. We have all different perspectives where we came from. Some of you prefer the King James Bible. Some prefer the NIV, some the the New Living Translation. Well, we teach from the ESV. We have people in this church that are premillennial. Some in this church are postmillennial, and others are amillennial in their understanding of the end times. Some of the members of this church are are dispensational in their theology. Some embrace covenant theology, whether it's classic covenant theology or new covenant theology or 1689 um, federalism. You're like, what in the world? Just okay. What you need to realize is with all those perspectives on a lot of different issues, we worship God here in this church and are faithful to one another in our fellowship because we are unified on the essentials of our faith. There is room for us not all to see eye to eye on all the different issues. 
on the doctrinal things that really matter, we are completely and totally unified on. That is why we can also embrace those in the assembly of God and the Boron Bible churches, our brothers and sisters in Christ, because we are unified with them on the essentials of our faith. This, by the way, is why the statement of faith in our church for membership is the 2000 Baptist Faith and Message. It's a good summary of all the essentials. It's easy to read, easy to understand. Right? But this is what we use to say, if you want to be here as a member, this is what you need to agree to. Now, the 1689 Second London Baptist Confession of Faith covers the essentials, but it goes deeper into some deeper theological details and issues. Right? That's why we don't use that for members, because there's, you have to spend years studying it before you can say, I agree with that. So we don't use that for membership, but we do use that confession of faith as those who would be elders and pastors here. Why? Because elders and pastors better have a deeper understanding and handle on our theology. That's why we require substantial agreement with that to be an elder in this church. We are united church-wide in the essentials of our faith. And so the confessions, hopefully you can see, are an integral part of the church. But secondly, and this is what I want to end on, is worship. Our worship is an affirmation of our confession. The way that we worship is an affirmation of our confession. This, by the way, is why the songs that we sing during worship matters. Because they are the creeds that we sing that express the truth that we believe about God. Like we sang this morning, hear these words. In fact, just close your eyes and hear these words again. The night is dark, but I am not forsaken. For by my side, the Savior, He will stay. I labor on in weakness and rejoicing. For in my need, His power is displayed. To this I hold, my shepherd will defend me. Through the deepest valley, He will lead. Oh, the night has been won. I shall overcome, yet not I but through Christ in me. That's the confession of our hope. Right? Or how about this one? Holy, holy, holy. Lord God Almighty, early in the morning our song shall rise to Thee. Holy, 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 merciful and mighty. God in three persons, blessed Trinity. The songs that we sing are confessions of what we believe. That is why the songs we select are so important. This is one of the reasons why I, I repented a few years back of some of the songs that I would personally choose and allow to be chosen for Sunday morning worship. There were times that we would sing songs that were Christian songs and were nice songs, but they were just simply were not fit for worship. And I repented of that because I didn't know any better at first. Like the song that so many of us love, like, I can only imagine. It's an uplifting song. I mean, we just had it played at a, at a funeral recently. right? It's, it, and it's great for personal devotion. And it's a song that fills people with hope. right? But that song is not fit for Sunday morning worship. Because the song like that is focused on the individual rather than God himself. That doesn't make it bad. It just means it's not fit for worship. It's about an individual's experience rather than the truth of who God is. The songs that we select 
to worship ought to declare the wondrous truths about God. It ought to be our continual confession that we are singing to God and singing to one another. As Vodi Bauckham says, our singing together is us singing the gospel to one another. Like this one. And if I could just repeat it without getting teared up, we'll be all right. Turn your eyes to the hillside where justice and mercy embraced. There the Son of God gave His life for us and a measureless debt was erased. That is our confession. That's what we believe. That is what we have unity on. That is the truth that we keep at the foundation of our church that keeps us stable. On that truth, we continue to grow into a vibrant, healthy, God-centered, gospel-declaring church. Our worship ought to be an affirmation of our confessions. By the way, this is how then we are to be the pillar and the buttress of the truth by holding on to the Bible and a robust confession of faith. This is how we maintain a healthy church, by knowing what we believe and why we believe it. This is how we reveal the truth of the dying world. It is by being confessional. You see, you can't give to the world something that you don't have. You can't give them the truth if you don't possess it. Our creeds and confessions gives us structure and stability to learn and to remember and also to explain the truths of our faith found in the Scriptures. And so really quickly, what do we do with these two things? What do we do with this? Well, two quick things. We ought to study and study and study and study and study and study the Scriptures. A lifelong endeavor that should never stop. A lifelong endeavor that should consume your heart. And number two, we ought to study the confessions. We should study the historic confessions that came to us through history. And we should study our own statement of faith, as well as the 1689 Second London Baptist Confession of Faith. By the way, the statement of faith, the 2000 Baptist Faith and Message, there are free copies back there. And if you want a copy of the London Baptist Confession of Faith, it's like five bucks, because that's what it costs us to get them. If you want one and you don't have five bucks, we'll have to figure that out. But we ought to do this so that we can remember and be and do the things that, as a church that we're being called to be. You've been listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead, a production of First Baptist Church in Boron, California. Our website address is fbcboron.org. And would you please consider partnering with us financially as we work to share the hope and the gospel of Jesus Christ with our community and our world.